if Christ has not been raised, then your faith, Christian, is in vain. If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is in vain. That's what Paul said, the Apostle Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This is the obvious truth as Christianity hinges on the truth of the resurrection, which many Christians today are thinking about on Easter Sunday. Obviously, we think about it here today. We think about it every single Sunday. And if this resurrection thing ain't true, what in the world are we doing? Why do we believe the things that we believe in? Why do we do the things we do? Why do we preach what we preach? And beyond what we do as individuals, Paul the Apostle also says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Other people, he says, ought to pity us because we'd be like the most deluded bunch of people of humanity believing in this thing called the resurrection. But thank God from reliable historical accounts from the Word of God, we know that the tomb is, in fact, empty, just as Oscar prayed. And Jesus Christ has, in fact, risen from the grave. I know that if uh, you are visiting with us, maybe you're exploring Christianity, you're checking out who this Jesus Christ is, and the, the, whether or not you should believe in the Scriptures, whether or not they are reliable, we are glad that you guys can join us today on this Easter Sunday, where we think again, as Christians about Jesus' resurrection and, of course, Jesus' death. What you hear today is from the Bible, and we hope that you find it useful as you are really trying to come to grips with what do Christians believe, what does the Bible actually teach. And on this Easter Sunday, we think about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Here's the main point. We think about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and how it offers two things in particular, two things. We could talk about so many different things that it offers, but... We're going to highlight two from our passage today. It offers joy for the sorrowful, joy for the sorrowful, and forgiveness for the sinful. Joy for the sorrowful, forgiveness for the sinful. Please join me in turning to the Gospel of Matthew. And we are in chapter 28, verses 1 to 10. Matthew 28, verses 1 to 10. The book of Matthew, or the Gospel according to Matthew, is one of the four Gospel accounts. If you're not familiar with them, we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, the first four books that make up the New Testament. And they record major highlights, major highlights of Jesus' life and ministry. And, and each author here, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, each author have different emphases, different emphases working to present to us an incredibly vivid record of who this Jesus was, what he had done, and what is the significance for all of our lives. And today we look at the account of the resurrection of Jesus Christ found in Matthew 28, Verses 1 to 10. Again, the main point here, we see that the resurrection of Jesus to new life offers joy for the sorrowful, forgiveness for the sinful. Go ahead and look there. Matthew 28, verses 1 to 10. This is after Jesus Christ had been crucified on that Good Friday. He's laid into the grave. The apostles are distraught. The disciples are distraught because they, they're struggling to believe. And uh, here on the dawn, right, it's still dark, and then on the dawn of the third day, that is Sunday, we see what happened there. Now, after the Sabbath, which was Saturday, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, you can imagine there, Mary's making her way to the tomb 
It's in darkness. And as she's going, there's this crack of dawn and the beginnings of the very light of the day comes to rest upon her and everything going on there. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and they, there they will see me. We see from this passage very clearly that the resurrection of Jesus offers joy for the sorrowful. Joy for the sorrowful. Some of you have been touched by grief and sorrow even in these last couple weeks. Perhaps burying bearing even a loved one. And you experience this grief and sorrow that accompanies that kind of tragedy. Sorrow comes from all sorts of things, not just death. I mean, perhaps you have reflected on your own broken family. Maybe you experienced hurt of something that happened long ago. And maybe some of us experienced grief and sorrow because we were the ones to have caused such sorrow to others. Sorrow is inevitable, and the sting of grief is so strong at times, goes so deep. Mary Magdalene was in the throes of such sorrow and grief here as she made her way to the tomb. After all, her Lord had been crucified and then laid in the tomb just two days prior to the events of the passage that we just read. Struggling to believe, we see that whatever personal hope she had in Christ most likely were laid to rest with his dead body. And so she sorrowed. Mary Magdalene, just to tell you a little bit about who she was, she was from a town called Galilee, far away from the prominent city of Jerusalem. She was a woman that, that really had no standing in the world's eyes or by the world's account, but she did become a follower of Jesus after, we assume, she, Jesus cast out seven demons, evil spirits, from her, as we read in Mark chapter 16. I imagine in that world there, were definitely, there was definitely like a social stigma cast upon this woman as the demon-possessed woman, thus making her standing quite low. Nevertheless, she was a devout disciple of Jesus, following him in his ministry. There's such a sweet picture here. This Mary Magdalene following him in his ministry, as others did, ministering to him, as we see in Matthew 27, verse 55, supporting him with what little money she had. She is named as a minister to Jesus. And of course, out of the love that she had for him. Not only was she a supporter of Christ during his public ministry, right when it was thriving, she also supported him when the crowns turned on him at, at his execution. You look there at verse 55, 27:55. She's there at his crucifixion, looking from a distance. 
She's also there when Christ was laid in the tomb there in 61. Mary is said to be sitting opposite of the tomb, just staring at it, knowing that her dear Lord's body is laid to rest in there. It's almost like she's accompanying the body of her Lord wherever he goes. And we assume weeping and mourning and filled with sorrow. Those of you who have lost a loved one, you know that it's your love, right? It's your love for the person who was living that compels you to oversee the whole process for laying the body into the ground. It's the love that it's love that even guides you placing the flower on the coffin before it is lowered into the ground. And that's an act out of devotion and love. Well, the same goes for Mary. The Gospel of Mark says that Mary brought to the tomb oil to anoint Jesus's body, as we know from the Gospel of Mark. By tradition, people would visit the tomb with oil, not to embalm, but as an expression of devotion here, right? In carrying, carrying out the customary traditions, people would visit the body a few days after the person had died, and they were actually gathering there in front of the body. And the fragrant oil would likely reduce the smell of decay, right? She's hoping to reduce the smell of decay as the people pay their respects to the Lord. And so she asks, well, who's going to roll away the tomb? Because naturally we want to be present with the one who had lived. Such sorrow, of course, is normal for the human experience. Mary's sorrow is normal for the human experience. Of course, many face it most intensely in death. While, of course, it's not exactly what most may have come to hear about at church or if you're visiting with us, the reality is that we all have and will continue to face death's onslaught. And the fact that we face such sorrow is, in fact, worth mourning over in and of itself. Maybe you have faced such sorrow and grief and you've asked the question, you know, how in the world did, get, did things get like this in the first place? If you're visiting with us, the Bible teaches us that sorrow and grief, this loss and death itself is abnormal. Abnormal in the sense that it was not like this in the beginning when God created man. It was not like this in the beginning when God created man. The Bible says that in the beginning, God created the world. And you look at this in Genesis chapter 1, and he pronounces that it is good. Death had not yet entered the world. First created man, first created woman, Adam and Eve, they were in a relationship with each other, and they were to be in a relationship with God, their maker. God had designed that relationship between him and man to be a relationship of love, trust, of union, of fellowship, where they were to live under and with and for the Lord. But we see so quickly in the third chapter of the Bible that man sinned, and from then man's heart was then shrouded in darkness. The Bible says that sin and death entered into the world on account of their sin. And all people, since our first parents, are now born in sin and are sinful by nature, all of us. Where, and we acted out, and evidence of this is that we destroy ourselves. I mean, how many of us know what that's like to destroy ourselves? We also want to destroy each other, and we also want to destroy our relationship with God. And sin is the reason for why things are the way they are. And every time we encounter this broken down world or the breaking down of our own lives, and the sorrow and the grief that comes with it, we are reminded that something is wrong, desperately wrong. 
with disease, with hate, with death. Something is wrong. Mary Magdalene knew this as she was grieving. And we know this for ourselves. But if you notice, as I read the passage earlier, Christ's resurrection, it brings a certain reversal for Mary and her sorrow. The resurrection brings a certain reversal for Mary in her sorrow. At the dawn of that morning, right, she arrives at the tomb in despair. But after she encounters, encounters the risen Christ, she leaves there in verse 8 with great joy. Let's read the account again, verses 2 to 6. Verses 2 to 6. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow, and for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. As he said, come, see the place where he lay. You know, if just some regular person uh, were to tell me that, this Jesus had risen from the dead, just as he said, I'd say, quit playing. You play too much. And some of you guys like to say, but this is no ordinary someone telling Mary this. This is an angel. And in what seems to be the supernatural earthquake, the angel then moves away the stone to let the two Marys in. The other accounts of the Gospels note that other people were there, but here the focus is on the two Marys, especially Mary Magdalene. They're going to let Marys in so that they might see the place where Jesus formerly lay. I'm sure the angel was quite a sight, right? Something to be impressed by. The soldiers that were there to guard the tomb, they fall down like dead men. Presumably they fainted. Uh, and then they go on to spread the lie. The disciples came and stole the body away. So here they fall down. They're frozen. But what are, we, what are we to be more impressed by? What we are to be more impressed by is the one to whom the angel reports to. That is Jesus. We're supposed to be more impressed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the angel says there in verse 6, He is not here, for He has risen. Not because I have said. It's not because these Christians have said. It's because He has said. Everything has taken place as he said. Come see the place where he lay. He's not here any longer. We today and Mary then are not to be amazed that the angel had finally said it, but because Jesus foretold it and then fulfilled it. He is not here, for he is risen as he said. On a number of occasions, Jesus told his disciples that he would be, quote, delivered into the hands of men and that they would kill the Son of Man, but that the Son of Man would be raised on the third day. He says that a number of times in the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 16, 17, 20. The fact that Jesus called it out is hugely significant. Absolutely hugely significant, right? There have been people who have claimed to be God. That's not a big deal, actually. There have been other people who have lived and claimed to be God. That's not uncommon. There have been other people who have, been claimed, who have claimed all sorts of things predicting the, the future, but then they're not, not coming true. And the fact that they are dead, right, these people who claim all sorts of things, the fact that they are dead and the fact that their claims never came to fruition just proves that they are nobodies. Their words are worthless. But for Jesus, not only did he claim to be, the, to be God the Son, the Son of God eternal, he also claimed that though I die, I will indeed live again. 
And then that happened. He actually delivered on his claim, proving to all that he has authority over everything, sin and death and Satan. Again, if you're, again, if you're visiting and you're exploring Christianity, I hope that you guys are striving to really come, come to grips with this. What is your verdict on the empty tomb? You figure that some guy claiming to be God and then getting up from the dead after he foretold it, you figure that that would have bearing on our lives, right? I wonder if you've actually examined the claims of Christ according to his word. Like for yourself. This is the best and most foundational way of examining for yourself, right? What this Christ Jesus stuff is all about. It is actually the foundation for the resurrection, these truth claims according to Jesus. And so, friends, if you would like to know more, I'd be happy to try and pair you up with somebody who can help you understand the claims of Christ according to his own word, to walk with you through one of the Gospels, to help you understand and and help you come to grips with who is this Jesus, help you understand and come to your own verdict on the empty tomb. But our passage is clear, right? Christ was crucified, but he has risen. Christian, as we think about this together on this Easter Sunday, the resurrection secures for us such great hope. Great hope because the new life he accomplished for his own, for himself, he accomplishes for his people. In other words, Jesus' new life guarantees for you, Christian, your new life in the age to come. Just as Christ himself championed over death. So you, if you are in Christ, you too have a champion in death, over death, such that death does not have the last say in even your own lives. I love 1 Corinthians 15, which I read from earlier. It speaks of how we, though we are perishable, right? We all die. We put on the imperishable in Christ because Christ as our forerunner has gone before he has put on the imperishable as he was raised. Even though we die, we'll be, we will be raised to new life in the life to come. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, 54 and 55, all on account of Jesus, right? Paul then has this little taunt towards death. It's like he looks death right in the face. He says, given Christ and who he is and what he has done, Christ the victor, he says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christian, praise God that Jesus ensures for you safe passage from sorrow and death to joy in new life. Into the presence of God the Father where we know his love and his peace. What he secures for himself, he secures for you. Where he is now. He brings you there as he intercedes for you before the Father. I wonder, Christian, is this your hope and joy despite the realities of sorrow and grief? The Bible never calls us to invalidate sorrow or grief. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead does, though, mean that sorrow and death never have the last say despite all of the earthly suffering, right? At the end of the day, what do we pray? We pray a prayer of hope. He has the last answer. And so we pray, come, Lord Jesus. But of course, when talking about joy on account of Jesus' resurrection, we also have to talk about his crucifixion. 
such joy is linked not just to Jesus who was raised for his people, but to Jesus who died for his people. This brings us to the second thing we think about. The resurrection of Jesus Christ brings forgiveness for the sinful. Forgiveness for the sinful. Easter weekend is oftentimes used as a general time to celebrate new life and bunnies and fertility and things like that. But to the Christian, this is not what Resurrection Sunday and this whole weekend is about. The Christian understanding of new life always involves new life in Christ, with Christ, under Christ, for Christ. Right? So if you think that Christianity you know, is all about this Jesus guy who got up from the dead, and you're sort of looking at it here, and you're seeing that the resurrection happen as we describe it, right? Logically, you see it happening before you, and you're sort of the, the, the passive observer. You say, oh yeah, well, great hope. Jesus lives again, so I get to live again and do what I want. That's actually not the case. He doesn't live so that you can continue doing what you want. He lives so that he would bring you to God to do what God wants. And so if you are to see Christ coming up from the grave properly, you have to understand his coming down and his going under in order to understand properly his going up. It's this great U-turn, so to speak, in Jesus Christ. And he works for us, this great U-turn, in his death on the cross and then his resurrection. That's why this Christian understanding of new life always involves new life in Christ, for Christ, under Christ, with Christ. To see and embrace the benefits of Christ's new life, you have to also see and embrace the necessity of Jesus' death on your behalf. This is really important, again, for those exploring Christianity. If we're going to understand the resurrection, we have to understand the crucifixion and why he came to die. Just listen to this. John 3.16, very popular verse. John 3.16 helps us out. For God so loved the world that is evil, darkened by sin. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Perish, but have eternal life. Now, of course, this eternal life is eternal life with Jesus. So then the question is, why are we perishing? In order to think properly about having this, possessing this eternal life, you have to think about why God says we were to perish. Here's another verse. 1 Corinthians 15, 17 says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in... He doesn't say general bad thoughts about the afterlife. No hope in general in relation to the afterlife. He says, If Christ had not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still... In your sins. He says if Christ wasn't raised, you're still in your sins. Meaning, we better take, about, take care of the sin problem here. Sin is why Christ came to die and be raised. This again goes all the way back to the beginning. Though God created us to be in a loving relationship with Him. Under Him. Trusting Him. Following His fatherly lead. We chose to live for ourselves. We wanted His throne. His control. We wanted to be king for ourselves, and so we earned just judgment from the only king. The Bible says this is judgment even in eternal hell. God is, after all, holy. He is righteous. He doesn't let evil go unpunished. But let's be clear, God is also loving and merciful. And in His mercy, He determined to delay such judgment on sinners, right? Delay that. And then to intervene on our behalf. In love, he sent his eternal son, Jesus Christ, who enters into this darkened world, shrouded by darkness on account of our own sin, 
to die on the cross for the sins of all who would believe on him. In this love and in this holiness, he lived a righteous life that you, Christian, could not. And, as Hebrews 12:2 says, for the joy set before him, on that good Friday morning, Christ endured the cross. In that moment, the eternal punishment that should have been upon us, Christians, God placed upon his son, Jesus Christ, as he hung on the cross and died. There it was the righteous who died for the unrighteous. And so he was pierced for our transgressions. Christian, if you've repented, as you have repented of your sins and believed on Jesus Christ, you realize that God sent Christ for you. God sent Christ for you. God sent Christ to live the righteous life so you would be found in his righteousness. He endured the cross bearing your sins so that you would not have to, but then you instead would be restored to God and forgiven so that you would receive eternal life in Christ. And so that you turn that He makes, He makes for you, Christian. So that you could go before the Father in Him. So that you would not have to die for your sin, but instead, He did. It was His death for your life. And can you imagine that He had you on His mind before all eternity? And every single step of his life, whether he was battling Satan in the desert, suffering at the hands of sinful men, hanging on the cross, buried in the grave, every step on the way, he did that for you. Do you remember what happened during that intimate meal with his disciples right before his betrayal and arrest? The Lord's Supper, right, where he foreshadowed his own death on the cross for sin, as he tore the bread and drank the wine. You know, it's such an intimate setting there where Jesus knows who he is dying for. And every step of the way, he was never distracted to the left or to the right, but like a, like his, like a stone, his face was set to the cross. Even in this intimate moment here, this dinner, this last supper, with the cross looming so closely, Jesus continued to pledge himself to his people, saying... This is my blood of the covenant. Basically saying, this is the promise. This is the sign of the promise given to all who would repent of their sins. My blood spilled for you. My body torn for you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Matthew 26. On Christian, this is what Christians think about on Good Friday on Easter, on Christmas. In fact, every single Sunday, this is what we sing about. This is what we give time to read about and to preach about and to pray about. This is the gospel, the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ, that the Son of God was crucified, dead and buried. But on the third day, He was raised, showing all that the power of sin and death and Satan is no more, and that payment is made, and in Christ, we can be made right with God. And Satan, who thought he held the keys to death once and for all, Jesus, in his crucifixion and resurrection, takes them back. Death is no more. The power of sin is no more. And Satan is vanquished. The cross and the resurrection is like the greatest one-two punch and then the walk-off that ever existed. 
This is the greatest drama that there could ever be. The world was again shrouded in darkness because of our own sin. We were all destined to be judged. All of us were blinded, dead in our sins and transgressions. We were driven by our own passions and desires, longing to live for ourselves and not God, our Creator. But in Christ, God pierces the darkness with the light of the Gospel. And all of a sudden, those who have eyes to see, seek it out. And though the light of life for a moment was snuffed out just for a little while in the grave, and though darkness covered the land, at the right time, the light of Christ emerged again. Emerging from the grave, bringing light to the world once again. Is this not what God has promised to do in His love and compassion to sinners to, to continue to pursue them? from start to finish, from Genesis to Revelation. This is what the gospel is all about. In an Old Testament prophecy of Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, hear what God said to people in darkness, in the darkness of sin, written 700 years before Jesus came. God, by His own initiative, speaks of the day when He Himself would bring hope through the Prince of Peace. He says, but, right, there's darkness. He says, but, there will be no gloom anymore for who her, for her who was in anguish the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light those who dwelt in the land of deep deep darkness on them a light shone guys you realize that this is our christ matthew 4 16 makes it very clear that this has been fulfilled in jesus as in him we have the dawning of light Jesus said, for example, in John chapter 12, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. John chapter 8 verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Christian, where did you get your light? Is it by your own doing? Is it because you're more beautiful than others? Is it because you're more intelligent? Because you're more competent? No, salvation is all by grace through faith in Jesus as 1 Corinthians 14, 6 says, For God who said, in the beginning, in creation, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. I wonder if you're visiting with us, do you see your need for the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ? It is those who know that they need light. It is they who seek it out. As Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Meaning this, guys, you can never be too bad. You can never be too sinful. You can never be too much of an outcast. Never be too hated. Or, or be too hateful to come to Jesus Christ. Mary Magdalene is this great example of one who was came out of such darkness. She was one who sought after Christ and who found Him, or He found her. She stands for all, right? Almost as a symbol for all who are sick, for all who are diseased of body and soul, as she had those seven demons cast out of her. And do you see Mary is the example of one who is made worthy. She is poor in spirit by the grace of God. And Jesus said, it is they who inherit the kingdom of heaven. She is pure in heart by the grace of God. 
and it is she who finds God. As Jesus chooses her, and then Jesus chooses her to be the first witness to his resurrection. Jesus himself appears to her. You look there in verse, verse 9. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. That, that, that in and of itself is an interesting scene there. You wonder why would Jesus say those very words, greetings. It's almost like, hey, what's going on? Greetings. And what's their response? They came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. They fell on their knees at his feet. What a beautiful picture there and a reminder that all of this Easter resurrection stuff, while it is in fact about new life, it is about new life in Christ. New life with Christ. New life under Christ and for Christ. It's about a life of living in reconciliation with God and forgiveness of sin. It is a life of worship. As we see that that is what it is for Mary. I wonder why would you want to live in the sorrow of sin today? When this Savior stands ready to receive all and everyone who calls upon His name. Jesus says in Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus came to call the sick and the tired and the weary and the sinful, those in darkness. Isn't it interesting here? Perhaps by coincidence, I think not. But in that Isaiah 9 passage, God says that He will bring to darkness the light, right? That they have seen a great light, this prophecy that took place specifically in Galilee, this town there. Far away from Jerusalem, right? Far away from, from uh, let's say, the leaders of Israel and whatnot. And God brings His light to this, this faraway place known to be covered in darkness in Galilee. Mary Magdalene is from Galilee. And where is Matthew's Gospel heading towards? Well, it's heading towards this great commission where Christ charges His disciples to go out into the world to bring His Gospel. The light to the world. And where does He do that? In verse 16, verse chapter 28, 28, 16. Now the eleven disciples went to, where is it? Galilee. To the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted, and Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We are in the line of the apostles who received that great commission. We, too, receive this great commission in the Spirit of Jesus Christ. We are to carry this gospel, and so we do here right now, to the ends of the earth, or at least to this group of people who are gathered here today, bringing this gospel that Jesus calls everybody to repent of their sins and find rest for their souls in Christ. And you can never be too sinful. As the song says, you only need to see your need of Him, and He will forgive you and give you such rest for your souls. What sorrows and sins do you have today? Christ desires you not carry them on your own, but that He bear the burden for you. What keeps you from such rest? Turn from your sin. 
and turn to Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we do thank you that you are a merciful God. And according to your word, we know that that means that you help those who are in need. And you do so with great compassion. We thank you, God, that even in our best, we occasionally do that. And even that, we have always mixed motives as we are sinful people. But you, Lord, are always that. You are love, in fact, and you show us how to love. We thank you, God, that we who are your people know of your great love and your steadfast mercies as we look and see Jesus Christ. Lord, as we think about this great U-turn, so to speak, that you won for yourself, we thank you, God, that you, by your grace and mercy, have chosen to bring your people along with you into the grave where we die to sin, and up from the grave where we live new life in you. God, we pray that this truly would change the way in which we live, the things that we strive after, and the hopes that we have even today. Rebuke us, we pray, where our hopes are so earthly, merely earthly. But instead, God, we pray that we would have a hope that is heavenly as we seek to live to the praise of your glorious grace. In your name we pray, amen.